I remembered the Grey Lady ghost. I was an 11 year old in 1964 and spent almost a year in the adolescent girl ward at Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital Stanmore. There was folding doors along one side of the ward. One cold and windy night, at a given symbol, those of us on that side released the bolts. The doors flew open, girls yelled out, it's the Grey Lady! Lots of screaming and havoc, all that pent-up adolescent energy. Welcome to Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War One at the RNOH, a Pegleg Productions podcast project created in collaboration with the RNOH and Radio Broccoli and funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund. Episode 1, The Triumph of Miss Mary Wardell. My name is Keith Reeve. I've been involved with the RNOH since 1968, originally as a child patient, then a volunteer at Radio Broccoli since 1977, and now also a part-time employee. Here is project lead Nicola Lane to tell us more. My name is Nicola Lane, and I'm an artist filmmaker. I've been a patient at the Prosthetics Rehabilitation Unit at the RNOH Stanmore since 1988. And over the years, I have heard stories about the Grey Lady ghost on the hospital site. And I began to wonder who or what inspired these stories. I discovered there are many Grey Lady ghosts throughout the UK, and they seem to be associated with military hospitals in the First World War. In 2019, the National Lottery Heritage Fund awarded Pegleg Productions a grant to research and commemorate the First World War at the RNOH. And so our project began, Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War I at the RNOH. After lottery funding was awarded, I started to explore this history in collaboration with RNOH staff, clinicians, patients and volunteers. And we discovered that it all began with a woman called Mary Wardell, who in 1883 purchased the Stanmore site to establish the Mary Wardell Convalescent Home for Scarlet Fever. So is Mary Wardell the Grey Lady? Or is the Grey Lady a manifestation of the layers of history within a hospital building? The project was originally intended to be a film documenting our explorations of the hospital site and the archives and legacies of the First World War that we discovered. But when COVID-19 happened, the RNOH was dramatically repurposed transformed into a London orthopaedic trauma centre, treating patients of all ages, regardless of COVID status. 
Yet another chapter in its long history of evolution in response to national crisis and challenge. All filming and interactions with the site had to stop. To reflect our new world of lockdown, working from home and Zoom meetings, it was decided that Searching for the Grey Lady should become a podcast. The mission statement of the Royal College of Physicians states, The history of medicine is the history of life and death, and we are all connected to it. This is the story of the RNOH Stanmore, from original sources found in museum and medical archives, and from archives and personal stories discovered at the RNOH. They are read by the RNOH clinicians, staff, patients, volunteers and friends of the RNOH in the wider community. Let us begin at the beginning. In the 1800s, London is the largest city in the world and by 1860 its population has tripled to 3 million people. In areas like the East End, there is extreme population density, extreme poverty and no sanitation. Epidemics of smallpox, cholera, diphtheria, scarlet fever and typhoid. Everyone is affected, both rich and poor. In 1848, Parliament passes the first Public Health Act and the first Medical Officer of Health for the City of London is appointed in 1855. He is Sir John Simon, a distinguished surgeon with a deep interest in pathology. He produces annual reports on the state of public health and he establishes the GMC. In a report of 1863... He describes quarters where commonly there is least sanitary supervision, least drainage, least scavenging, least or worst water supply, and if in town, least light and air. Such are the sanitary dangers to which poverty is almost certainly exposed. These are painful reflections, especially when it is remembered that the poverty to which they advert is not the deserved poverty of idleness. In all cases, it is a poverty of working populations. Parliament introduced compulsory smallpox vaccination in England and Wales in 1853, and cholera outbreaks were beginning to decrease after the opening of Basilgate's new sewage systems in 1865. But between 1870 and 1879, 29,000 people in London died from scarlet fever. February the 12th, 1883, the Derby Daily Telegraph, Our Lady's Letter by One of Themselves. The great sympathy I feel in all sanitary movements induced me to accept an invitation to attend a meeting of the Westminster Sanitary Aid Association a few days ago. This little society has been at work but for one year, but it has tested the possibility of arresting disease in a crowded London district by individual exertion and intelligent action. It provides sanitary visitors, brave-hearted, sensible women, who go to the homes when fever has taken possession of some member of a family. They show how the sufferer can be isolated and not allowed to become a source of infection to the rest. The lesson has been a difficult one to teach to the poor folks who have no other idea than living together 
and thus often spreading disease not only amongst themselves, but in the classes above them for whom they work as tailors, seamstresses, laundresses and others. The British Medical Journal, October 30th, 1886. The experience of several towns has now shown clearly that notification is efficient in combating the spread of scarlet fever and is not in practice attended with the difficulties prophesied for it. Dr Pringle remarked with reference to this subject that the case of Leicester was a very remarkable one. There, scarlet fever raged last year to an extent which caused the sanitary committee of the council the greatest alarm. Isolation could not be carried out, the reason apparently being that the inhabitants of the infected houses objected to this interference with their liberty. And, as they didn't come under the act which could compulsorily remove the infected cases, they remained at home to spread the disease. In the British Medical Journal of March 1882, Dr. A.P. Stewart, consulting physician to the Middlesex Hospital, writes, Is this Holocaust a necessary condition of our modern civilization? Dr. Stewart reveals the average of cases annually occurring in London is about 20,000 and that the numbers of infections and deaths from scarlet fever is steadily rising. And then there is the problem of what is now known as bed blocking. Dr. Stewart quotes the Honorary Secretary of the London Fever Hospital. There are no special homes to which convalescent patients from the London Fever Hospital are sent. Indeed, I'm not aware that there is any home to which such patients can with safety be sent from any London hospital. The course now adopted is to keep the patients in the convalescent wards until they can be discharged without the risk of communicating the infection to others. If the committee had a convalescent home, the stay of the patients in the hospital might be considerably shortened. This implies more room for and a more rapid admission of acute cases into the fever hospital. In the article, Dr Stewart goes on to describe a discussion with colleagues in the public medicine section in Cork about the provision of homes for convalescents from infectious diseases. All agree that there is an urgent need, but regretfully acknowledge it would be too expensive and must remain only as a vision of a distant future. It so happened that on the morning of the day on which the discussion took place, I received from a lady in London, who was not then personally known to me, a letter requesting my counsel and aid in carrying out a project she had herself devised for providing a home for convalescents from Scarlatina. On my return to town, I acquainted myself thoroughly with her views, and, believing them to be sound and practicable, I advised her to enlist the sympathy and obtain a public declaration of the collective opinions of the leading members of the medical profession in the metropolis and its neighbourhood. To many of these, I gave her notes of introduction. That lady was Miss Mary Wardell, 
In just a couple of weeks, she went on to persuade 85 medical men, including the presidents of the Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons and a large number of the most eminent physicians in London, to sign the following declaration. We, the undersigned, cordially approve of Miss Mary Wardell's proposal to establish an institution for the reception and isolation of convalescents from scarlet fever as likely to promote their more complete recovery and also to check the spread of that formidable disease. We earnestly recommend this first attempt to supply a great unacknowledged want in the sanitary arrangements of the metropolis to the large and liberal supporter, the public, especially as the attempt will be made to render the institution partially self-supporting. I hear from Miss Mary Wardell that her scarlet fever convalescent home is now really about to be open. She has secured a mansion in a healthy but isolated position about 10 miles from London. July the 19th, 1884. The Hampstead and Highgate Express. For some five years past, our neighbour, Miss Mary Wardell of Stanley Gardens, Belsize, has been engaged in promoting the establishment of a convalescent home for scarlet fever patients. Mrs Gladstone is much interested in this scheme, and it was at her home, introduced by the Premier himself, that I first saw Miss Mary Wardell. The committee which had been formed obtained possession of an unfinished house with a freehold of four acres situated on Brockley Hill near Stanmore. On Monday last, the home was opened by Her Royal Highness the Princess of Wales. Saturday, the 19th of July, 1884, the Hendon and Finchley Times. That curious individual, the oldest inhabitant, was ransacking his head on Monday to try, if he could, within his recollection, find a parallel to the scene which took place on Monday along the Edgware Road. We made note that, from the Crown at Cricklewood, right away to the hospital, there were indications at intervals along the entire route that something was going forward. <laughs> Commencing at the Welsh Harp, Mr Warner had thrown across the road a trophy of flags. While at the bald-faced stag, not only the national but the local flags were flying in every direction. The bulk of decorations, however, appeared to be in between the Union Workhouse and the upper end of Edgware Town. The signpost of the Shandos Arms, with the motto of the Shandos family, Hold Forth the Right Hand, was draped from base to summit with evergreens and white lilies. Beginning at the workhouse, there was a very effective piece of decoration carried out over the gate, where there was an inscription God bless the princess and prince and princesses, with red letters on a white ground, 
surrounded by wreaths of laurels and other evergreens. All the aged men and women who could get out of the Union were seated outside the gate and as the royal carriage passed, the Prince of Wales, with that innate good nature which is characteristic of him, took off his hat and politely bowed to the assembly. Then at Edgware Bridge, a very handsome and substantial arch was thrown across the road at its narrowest point, bearing on the east or town side the inscription, Welcome to Edgware. On the west side, and looking over to Brockley Hill, were the words, Prosperity to the Convalescent Home. The carriages, two in number, were preceded by an outrider and a patrol. Tuesday, July 29th. 1884. The Western Times. Exeter. Our Lady's Column by one of themselves. The pretty little village of Edra was on fate the other day to welcome the Prince and Princess of Wales and their daughters Louise, Victoria and Maud. The church bells were ringing, flags flying and the village turned out to see the royal cortege pass. We who were invited to the ceremony sat waiting in the spacious reception room in the fine old mansion, now appropriated for the use of convalescence from a terrible disease. At last, the open carriage, drawn by four horses, could be seen in the drive, and as it drew up at the door, Miss Mary Wardell and some gentlemen stepped forward to receive her royal visitors. A number of young ladies occupied the front seats in the room, who were to present purses of money collected from the home to the princess, and several damsels and little girls dressed in scarlet frocks with white aprons and pretty white caps stood on either side of the doorway to represent the uniform which attendants in the home will always wear. The Archdeacon of Middlesex having opened the proceedings with a prayer, Sir Joseph Feyre read the following address. The committee of Miss Mary Wardell's convalescent home for scarlet fever, beg to tender their most grateful thanks for the gracious condescension of your Royal Highness in coming here today to perform the ceremony of opening the home and thus giving encouragement to the unique and interesting experiment of establishing institutions for the receptions of people recovering from infectious diseases. Your Royal Highness is perhaps aware of the fact that to Miss Mary Wardell is due the credit of initiating this movement, and it is just five years since she commenced her efforts to obtain sufficient money to establish her home, where patients recovering from scarlet fever might be comfortably lodged and at the same time completely isolated from the public at large. The large sum of money required for the purchase of grounds and houses has been raised by donations and subscriptions from the public. And it gives the committee great pleasure to inform your Royal Highness that, up to the present, they are not in debt. It is chiefly to the selfless devotion, untiring energy and ability of Miss Mary Wardell that the great and unqualified success of the undertaking is due. But the committee, in recognition of her efforts, determine that the home should be called the Mary Wardell Home for Convalescence from Scarlet Fever, under which designation 
they respectfully request your royal highness graciously to open the home. The princess looked very sweet and gracious. She was dressed entirely in black, as were her daughters. You struck me as being peculiarly unpretentious. Ladylike girls. Certainly not good-looking, but with pleasant, kindly faces and agreeable, quiet manners. They walked behind their parents and seemed much interested in all they saw of the home. After the ceremony, everybody went over the house and inspected the excellent arrangements for future inmates. The beds looked clean and comfortable and were neatly covered with light quilts of pretty coloured cretonne filled all around. In one room to be devoted to children, I saw a little cot filled with lovely white flowers and ferns, and on it was an illuminated announcement that this cot was endowed by a certain lady in memory of Ethel, her only child who died from the effects of scarlet fever. In London alone, more than 20,000 such cases occur annually, who for the most part as soon as they can leave their beds mixed with the general public, in the streets, parks, workshops, schools and gutters, the common playground of the children of the London poor, and are a sure and certain means of increasing and spreading this dire disease. The ceremony at Brockney Hill lasted about an hour and a half when the party returned down. The High Street Edgware was crowded from one end to the other and a considerable amount of cheering took place as the carriages drove through. At night, the bells of Edgware and Stanmore churches rang out merry peals and the crowds of people seemed reluctant to go home. Episode 1, The Triumph of Miss Mary Wardell, is written and directed by Nicola Lane. It is narrated by Keith Reeve, Radio Broccoli's award-winning broadcaster. The readers in order of performance are Miss Artie Shah, Bartek Shostakovsky, Christine Bowes, David Rauch, Manjula Jayakodi, Timothy Morand and Monica Richardson. The sound design is by Louis Morand and the podcast is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and is created in collaboration with Radio Broccoli. For more information about Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War I at the RNOH, please go to www.peglegproductions.org. <laughs>